You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We've come to Lord's Day here at the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's only fitting that we also then turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses this and summarizes it in Lord's Day 3. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No. On the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, 
so that he might rightly know God as creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where then did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, what could possibly be wrong? You look at this baby baptized here this afternoon. He's so small and cuddly. He's also rather cute and adorable. Every lady who walks by will want to hug him and any number of men as well, although they won't admit it. But then we turn our attention to Lord's Day 3, and what do we read there? We're asked right away in question 6 about man's wickedness and perversity. And thereafter, in question 7, we are asked about man's depraved nature. And finally, in question 8, we hear words like corrupt, unable to do any good, inclined to all evil. So what do we have here? Well, you can say what we have really is kind of a contrast, don't we? On the one hand, we have a beautiful baby. And on the other hand, we have an ugly humanity. So who is right? Well, in a sense, both are. For I think it is a fact that babies are cute It's also a fact that as they grow up and begin to assert themselves, some of that cuteness may disappear. And furthermore, it's a fact that once they become adults, they can sometimes end up doing some really dumb and dangerous things. And indeed, if they're into the wrong crowd, they can end up doing some terrible things. And if you want the evidence for that, well, you can find it every day in your newspapers, in your broadcasts, on your computers. It's there in your neighborhoods, in your relationships, in your workplaces. No matter where you look today, you cannot but fail to see that humanity has some real fundamental problems. And it leads you to the conclusion that humankind is flawed, is conflicted, is corrupt. Yes, and here, Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us rather graphically of that fact. And indeed, you can say it digs in to the sad state of our humanity. It wants us, as it were, as a good counselor, you might even say, to have a real, realistic and proper assessment of who we are. And that's necessary if we are to have a true grip on our sins and misery. And it's also necessary if, in the final analysis, we are going to grasp fully and completely and joyfully the wonder and the miracle of our deliverance in Jesus Christ. And so this afternoon I preached to you on the theme, Humanity in Crisis... First of all, look at who's to blame. Secondly, 
What's the problem? And third, where is the solution? Well, beloved, last time at the end of Lord's Day 2, a rather blunt and terrible confession was made. It was even put in stark first-person terms, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Notice there is, as it were, no argument here. It's not about my neighbor is inclined, I am inclined. Confronted with the great love demand of the law, there is no other way out than to admit our hate. And that hate often lies closer to our bosoms than love. And so man acknowledges this problem. He has no alternative. Only that's not the end of the story, for next it is on to the source, the origin, as well as the cause of the problem. And, and now notice what man does and what he asks. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? That's, of course, what we call deflection. Man is here suggesting, in a rather cunning kind of way, that God, God may ultimately be the fault for that terrible state of affairs in which we find ourselves. Perhaps he created man and woman with some serious flaws and blemishes in their nature. Perhaps he botched things up in the very beginning. Perhaps if he had only done a better job. And perhaps at bottom it's all really and actually his fault. Now that needs investigating. So let's look for a moment at the Genesis record. Just how did God make man? Did he make him flawed, broken, vulnerable? Well, first of all, we're told in Scripture that God made man in his image. In addition, it says that God also made man in his likeness. Image and likeness both describe man's close and intimate connection and relationship to God. Yes, and such a thing is only said of man. No other creatures are made in God's image. Only man is. So no horse, in spite of what you think of horses, no cow, no pig, no eagle, no lion, no monkey, nothing else in all of creation has been made as we are. While every other creature is made after its kind, we are, so to speak, excuse the expression, made after God's kind. And that means we're unique. Utterly and absolutely unique. But in what way are we unique? For one, we can say that man is unique in his very integral being. When God makes man, he makes him, it says in Genesis 2 verse 7, a living being. Now, it's hard to describe exactly what this means, but, but surely it's saying that in one way or another, the life of God lives in man. For notice, it's God who breathes into him the breath of life. 
Now, some scholars insist this simply means that God gave man life. He made your heart tick. But, you know, in a sense, that's what God does for all creatures. He makes them tick. Now, something else is meant here, and it has to do with with God giving to man any number of capacities and abilities. The ability to think. To speak, to, to name the animals, to sort out creation, if you will, to imagine, to invent, to analyze all of these qualities that are so integral to our humanity ultimately come from God. He's their source. But then, if man is unique in terms of his being and its abilities, he's also unique in terms of his moral qualities. In that regard, think of what we're told in Ephesians 4, verse 24, by the Apostle Paul, where he writes that we were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, God passes more onto us than just abilities. He also endows us with these wonderful moral qualities. He makes us with righteousness. That means we've been made right. Without flaws, without blemishes, without warts. And he also makes us holy. In holiness, which means with with weight, importance, ultimately the idea is with true significance. So we see man. Man in his glory, man in his uniqueness. Thanks to what God has done. And also man with a purpose. Because, you know, God makes us so super special, not just for idleness or emptiness. No, he has given us special work. Man's to rule over all of creation. Man's to fill the earth. He's to subdue it. He's created for dominion. He's to be the king of creation. Only God is higher. And of course, what God wants is not just man to be king in name, but also in his heart, soul, and mind, in the very fiber of his being. The Catechism rightly summarizes what God expects from man when it says, so that man might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise And glorify him. That's why God. Made us. Ultimately God wants company. The company of. Us as his human creatures. So now when you take all of this into account. And there's more things you could add to the list no doubt. Can it really be maintained. That God created man so wicked. And perverse, I think we have to say in all honesty that nothing could be farther from the truth. In other words, don't blame God for the mess. 
Don't blame God for the wrongs you do, for the wrongs that your children do, for the wrongs that you read about or hear about. It's not God. That's the bottom line in Scripture. It's not God. So then who is it? Where does the problem lie? Question and answer seven captures it in a few words. The question is this, from where then did man's depraved nature come? And the answer from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, for there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. That's quite the mouthful. Notice... In these few words, in this one sentence, you're told about the event, the act, the connection, the persons, the place, the consequence, and all the dirty fallout. One sentence, all those things. First, there's the event. The Catechism calls it the fall. Theologians call it the fall. Scripture calls it the fall. We all call it the fall. Why do we call it the fall? Because the one moment humanity is so high and so exalted, one moment we are invested with this uniqueness, with glorious abilities and with great qualities, and the next moment is all tarnished and spoiled and polluted. One moment we're the servants of God, we're the guardians of our neighbor, we're the stewards of creation, and the next we are rebels fighting against God, enemies of our neighbor, and exploiters of creation. One moment humanity fellowships intimately with its God's And the next moment, it's like we're a bunch of strangers. In short, humanity fell. You can't fall any farther or deeper or more disastrously than this. But why do we fall? Well, it has everything to do with an act, an act of disobedience. God had clearly said, you people, Adam and Eve, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Quite simply, everything in the garden is accessible to you. There's only one small restriction, one limitation, one forbidden tree. So what did those first people do? Did they listen? Did they obey? Did they pass this very simple test with flying colors? No, the woman, it says in Genesis 3, 6, saw. And there's lots of meaning in that word, saw. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes, also desirable for gaining wisdom. Remember the serpent? She took some and ate it. And she also gave to her husband, who, by the way, was standing right beside her. And he ate it. In short, they disobeyed. They disobeyed God's command. They purposely, intentionally went their own way. Contrary to the will of God. 
And that's the act. Of course, you can describe it in other ways. You can embellish it, but that's the act. And who are the they? The catechism says that the they are our first parents. It's getting closer to home, isn't it? They're the ones who did this. And we today, whether we like it or not, are connected to them. There are always some relatives you might want to disown. And here's a prime example of a pair we'd all love to disown. But really we can't. Because they're the parents of all of us. White, black, yellow. Of all of us, Canadians, Chinese, Africans, Koreans, of all of us, be we teachers, accountants, or contractors. This is part of our family history. This is part of our genealogical record. There's a flesh and blood connection here. And notice, too, the catechism gets even more specific. It names these wayward people. These persons are called Adam and Eve. Literally, they're called the man and the woman, Ish and Isha. They're made male and female. And they're both guilty. True, Eve went first, but all the while Adam was watching her and followed suit. The fact he's watching her and didn't go first doesn't make him any better. It just makes him a whole lot weaker. Both disobeyed. They both disobeyed God and they both fell. And and now, of course, I'm aware of the fact that there are some people who say that Adam and Eve, don't worry, they're not real people. They're representative people or they're mythological people or what have you. You know, the problem is with that, the Bible doesn't describe them in that kind of a way. I dare say, if Adam and Eve aren't real, then Noah isn't real either. And you can forget about Abraham and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah. Now, Genesis names them. That's the stress, their actuality, their historicity. These are real space-time people. And notice as well that the author of Genesis, led by the Spirit of God, also reveals the place where all of this happens. And it happened in paradise. Now, isn't that about the strangest thing of the story? If we've been told that this all happened in some kind of a slum in the center of a degenerating city somewhere, or if it had happened under less than ideal conditions or in connection with some great stress or strain, we might have a little bit of sympathy for what transpired, but the opposite's the case. It happened in paradise of all places. It happened in the least likeliest of places. It happened in the most beautiful place imaginable. People still always want to go back to paradise. They always want to go back to Eden. If you think Hawaii or the Caribbean or the Mediterranean are nice, you haven't seen anything yet. Paradise beats them by a country mile. 
And yet that's where Adam and Eve, our first parents, fell. Explain that, if you can. But nevertheless, that's not the end of the story, for there's also something else that we need to see here, and that's a consequence, a terrible consequence. The Catechism puts it like this, for there our nature became so corrupt. With these words, it it really captures that once man disobeys God, everything, everything changes. Notice in the Genesis account, he no longer welcomes God. When God walks in the cool of the day, he hides from him. He discovers nakedness as a shame. Quick, let's get covered up. He plays the blame game. The woman you gave me. One moment his eyes are popping up and he says, Ah, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. She's going to be called woman. And the next moment it's the woman. And he turns violent. See Cain. He becomes revengeful. We call Lamech. He becomes immoral. What about the sons of God? He becomes disrespectful. See Ham. He becomes boastful. See Babel. There's no doubt that this eating led to corrupting. That Adam and Eve's natures changed. That it ruined and polluted and perverted them. And not just them, for there's consequence here, not just for Adam and Eve, but notice also there's fallout, terrible fallout for all of us. Why do children rebel? At times against their parents. Why do marriage partners break their marriage vows? Why do people lie and steal, for example, at work and elsewhere? Why do people slander one another? Why do we read almost every day about sexual abuse? Why all the mess in human lives? Folks, it's not the environment. It's in our genes, in our makeup, in our hearts. Humanity has become infected with sin. And it's bad. Just ask Tiger Woods. And just how bad is described for us further in question eight, we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil. Oh, I know it sounds harsh, extreme, Exaggerated. But what it really means is that we're no longer able to do good as God defines good. You know, we define good too. We, we talk about civil good, helping old people across the street, giving money to charity, working together in the community. But when it comes to real good, saving good, getting along with God, doing the will of God, glorifying God, the answer is no. And when it comes to our inclinations, our tendencies, our leanings, our prejudices, the news is just as bad. We don't naturally incline towards goodness, love, and mercy. We incline toward lust and violence and betrayal. 
And Hollywood knows this perhaps better than anywhere else, and that's why it supplies us with a menu that's full of that kind of stuff. And why does it do that? Well, because it knows it makes the ratings go up. It knows we want it. We like it. We watch it. We don't really want to have the nice, gentle, kind, family-orientated stuff when we can have blood, guts, and gore. And you name it. And so what's the problem? The problem's us. It's us, thanks to Adam and Eve and the mess they made in paradise. And that's all rather depressing, isn't it? You didn't really want to hear this, did you? I know I don't really want to hear it, and I don't even like to preach it. But I don't really think you or I have any choice, do we? We need, from time to time, to hear all this stuff. There are times when we desperately need to hear the sad music of our sin and depravity. Only, you know, we need it not simply to make us uncomfortable or to start beating up on ourselves or to turn sour and sadistic. No, we need it so that we can see that we need to turn to God. Turn to Him with open hands and with a yearning heart. For the fact of the matter is that only God can do something about this mess that we're in. Only He has the means and the medicine to properly treat what ails us. And what does the medicine look like? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Spirit of God. It comes by means of the new birth and the new life and the new humanity that He gives us. Our Lord Jesus says it very plainly over and over again. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water. That means unless he's cleansed and sanitized. And the Spirit, the Spirit of God, flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must. You must be born again. And indeed, study the scriptures. And you see that apart from this new birth, we are dead in trespass and sin. We're children of, of wrath. Lovers of darkness and haters of light. Our hearts are like stone. We're unable to submit to God. We're unable to accept the gospel. We're unable to come to Christ. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to Satan. No good thing lives in us. So a new birth, a whole new renovated life, is what's needed. And you know, there we come to the wonder of baptism. For the wonder of baptism is that there, this whole new life is promised. 
Did you catch that in the form? First it spells out our need. We and our children are conceived and born in sin, are therefore by nature children of wrath, so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. And notice too how it spells out the remedy or the solution. When we are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us by this sacrament that he will dwell in us and make us living members of Christ, imparting to what what we have in Christ, namely the cleansing from our sins and the daily renewal of our lives till we shall finally be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect in life eternal. Rob and Nellie, indeed, all of you parents, this is what you need to hold out to your children every day. The promise of new life. The promise of daily renewal. Hold it out to your children. And close it with the call of the gospel. The call to repent. To believe in Christ. And to walk in newness of life. And when we do that, then our humanity will no longer be in crisis. But it will be on the road to glory. To the assembly of God's elect in life eternal. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.